The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at www.harmonybible.org. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. We pray and ask that you be with us now, that you would just mold us and make us into the image of your Son. God, that you would transform our hearts and our minds as we look toward you. God, be with us as we look at your word. Help us to see it, to understand it, to apply it, and to live it. God, I just pray and ask that in this next uh, time together, in these next few minutes together, that you would knit our hearts together and help us to follow you, to be faithful uh, servants of yours as we seek to understand what you are telling us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're going to continue our journey through the book of Colossians. And uh, I have 25 minutes, so this is going to go really fast, right? And I knew this, and I knew... I, I knew I should have prepared fewer words, but you know me. So, I just want to encourage you, as we go through the book of Colossians, that you be reading the book of Colossians every day. It's a small book. It's very easy to read through it. And I think as we spend the next three weeks, four weeks, six months, however long we're going to be in Colossians, it would be great to have you read through the book of Colossians every morning, every, you know, every day throughout that time, and let it really permeate our Hearts. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that we'd be moving through the book of Colossians in third gear. And I said, we're not going to be moving through in first. right? We're not going to go too slow. We're not going to be moving through in fifth gear. We're not going to be moving too fast. We're going to be in third gear. So we're going to cover this at a moderate pace. However, over the next few weeks, we're going to downshift a little bit. We may even almost put it in the park today as we work through the next several verses. And the reason for doing so is because this section, verses 15 through 20, will help us develop a proper Christology. And the word Christology is just a fancy word for the study of the person and work of Christ. So while you may not think of yourself as much of a theologian, and while it's become popular in much of Christendom today to downplay the importance of theology, God wants us to be serious students of His Word. He he wants to make sure that we study to show ourselves approved, accurately handling the Word of God. As G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton said, he said, theology is simply that part of religion that uses the brain. So that's what I'm going to challenge us to do the next couple of weeks is use our brains. Or as we learned last week, God wants us to be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But He doesn't want us to just get fat heads. The idea is not that we gain this knowledge, we get these big fat heads, and we walk around and we say, look at how smart I am. Instead, the the text from last week continues and says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. So it's my prayer that as we study theology, that we gain a firm understanding for who Christ is and what He has done, and that it builds a foundation for the rest of this letter. Because as we move forward, we're going to see that Paul in the book of Colossians is all about Jesus. As you read through this every morning, I encourage you to count the number of times he says Christ. This letter is all about Christ. And if we're going to understand why, we need to understand this, these verses. We need to lay this foundation. And I believe that foundation will help us become doers of the Word. So without further ado, let's look at Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. It says this, He, this is Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good will, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through whom I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So while we're going to be in verses 15 through 20 for the next several weeks, today our focus is going to be on verse 15. That's it. Just verse 15. Unfortunately, this verse is one that is frequently quoted by many false teachers of our day. And these false teachers, they misconstrue it, and they actually make it to say just the opposite of what it says. And that is exactly how Satan often works. He takes the truth, and he just says the opposite of what God says, and presents it as truth. And that's what these false teachers do. They take what Paul has said in this verse, and they say, no, no, it means this. Let's start by looking at the first part of the verse. The first part of the verse says this. He, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The Greek word translated image is icon. You know, like computer icon, if you will. The Greek Greek word is icon, and it can be used to convey two nuances of meaning. meaning. The first way that it can be used is to express an illustration or representation, a likeness, if you will. It's the same word that's used in Luke 20, 24, where Jesus says, show me a denarius. Whose likeness, whose icon, he says, an inscription does it have? And they said, well, it has Caesar's. And it's the same word found in Romans 8, 28 and 29, which says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image, the icon of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And then it's also the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says that man is the image and glory of God. And in each of these contexts, the word clearly refers to a representation. The image on a coin is not an exact likeness. If I were to take a penny out of my pocket, uh, by the way, if I don't have any pennies in my pocket, um, this has nothing to do with anything. Copper wire was actually invented at my house. It was me trying to pry a penny out of Kim's hand. Um, anyway, so if I were to take a penny out of my pocket and I was to look at it, I would see an image, a representation of Abraham Lincoln on it. However, the image is not him. It's merely a representation. And in the same way, we are conformed to the image, a representation of Christ. We don't become him. We don't look exactly like him. No more than the penny we go. We don't look at Abraham Lincoln and look at a penny and go, Boy, I'm not sure which one's the real thing, right? In the same way, people don't look at us and they don't go, wow, I see Jesus. I can't even tell the difference between Bill Batty and Jesus, right? The point is that day by day, as we grow, we begin to look like and act like 
Jesus. We become more like Him in our character, our behavior. We're a representation of Him. But the second way the word icon can be used, and the way it's used here in verse 15, carries the idea of manifestation. The idea here is that the representation is more than a symbol, but that it contains the actual presence of the object. That's how the author of Hebrews uses the word in Hebrews 10, when he says, for the law, this is Hebrews 10.1, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form, not the icon, he says, so it's only a shadow, not the very form, not the very icon of things, can never, by the same sacrifices, which they continually, uh, year by year offer, make perfect those who draw near. So he's saying, the law is just a shadow of the things to come. It's not the actual things to come. It's not the very thing. And he says, it's not the very icon. So Paul, when he says it here in Colossians, he's saying that Jesus represents God because He is God. He is the very form. He is the manifestation of God. The J.B. Phillips translation of this verse says, He is the visible expression of God. Whereas the author of Hebrews uses the word, He is the very form of God. You see, when Paul says that Jesus is the image of God, he is saying the same thing that Hebrews 1.3 says. He says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. Exact representation. See, the Bible is clear. Jesus is more than just a shadow or a picture of God. Jesus is God. To make Colossians 1.15 say anything different, one must twist and contort not only the context from which this verse comes, but also the clear teaching of the rest of Scripture. Consider John 1, which says, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That this Word that was God became flesh, and that person is Jesus. And we saw His glory. See, though He's the invisible one, though He's the invisible God, we saw His glory, and we saw it through Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and His name was Jesus. So let's move on to the last part of verse 15. That's the first part. The last part says, He, Jesus, is the firstborn of all creation. Paul makes the statement to affirm the first statement. The first statement is Jesus is God. The second statement, he's affirming that by saying he is the firstborn of all creation. The term firstborn often refers to the eldest child. And it's primarily the way it's used in the Old Testament. So when we think of firstborn, we think of the oldest child. However, in Jewish culture, this idea also came to mean a position of prominence or privilege. And it was, given, it was an idea of being given a special place with regard to an inheritance. This is clearly the way it's used in Psalm 89. Psalm 89.27, David is called the firstborn of the kings. He's the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. God does not mean that David was the first king in order of time, that he was the first king to ever exist, whether in Israel's history or any history. Instead, he means he's given a place of prominence and privilege. He's the firstborn. 
Not only was David declared a man after God's own heart, but he would be the man through whom the Messiah would come, the line through whom the Messiah would be born. In fact, Psalm 89 is really, it's written about David, but it also points us to Jesus. It points to the true firstborn who would come. And furthermore, God refers to the nation of Israel as his firstborn. In Exodus 4, 21-23, we read, The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. He says, go to Egypt, perform these wonders, but I'm going to harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So the nation, God says, Israel, the nation, is my firstborn. They're my chosen people, my people of privilege. And then he says, say to him, Israel's my firstborn, so let my son go. Let my people go. Or your firstborn, the thing that is important to you, you will lose. And ultimately, we know the story. And that Pharaoh did not listen. And Pharaoh lost that which was important to him, his firstborn. See, this idea of privilege or importance regarding the firstborn is also clear when we consider how inheritances were divided. In Jewish culture, the firstborn would receive a double portion of the inheritance when his father died. And because of his position, Jesus clearly occupies a special place. Hebrews 1-2 indicates that position by saying that he is the heir of all things. That not only does he receive a special inheritance, but he's the heir of all things. And then we need not look further even than the context of Colossians 1 to see this, that firstborn does not refer to first in order of time. Because there we read in 118 that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. And clearly this does not mean that Jesus was the first to die. Many died before Him. Nor was He even the first to be raised from the dead in order of time. The point is that Jesus holds a special place of authority and significance over death and all those who have died. So the point of verse 15 when it says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation is not that He was the first thing created, but that He holds a special place over creation. That He is prominent. That He is preeminent. That when we look at creation, Jesus stands over and above it all. Now notice that I said over creation. I don't want to belabor this point much. The text says, at least in the NASB, it says of creation. However, the NIV makes an interpretive decision and seeks to clarify it. It says he is the firstborn over creation. The NLT, the New Living Translation, goes even further and says that Jesus is supreme over all creation. And then it adds a little asterisk saying, well, technically, in the most literal sense, it's firstborn of all creation. See, those versions are not wrong in interpreting the text in this way. They're simply trying to be true to the meaning of the text. So it's not wrong to say of creation, but maybe not as clear in English. Because we tend to think of, when we hear that, we tend to think of Jesus as being something that is part of creation. And the difference is the way we understand the word of. Paul is saying firstborn of creation, like we might say captain of a ship, right? The captain is not part of the ship. We talk about the deck of a ship, which is part of the ship, and we talk about the captain of a ship, which the captain is not part of the actual ship. And in the same way, Jesus is, is um, over creation. He's of creation. He's the firstborn of creation, much like a captain is the captain of a ship. Jesus is 
firstborn over all of creation. So in review, we're getting to the end of eight pages of notes. We're on page four. So in review, when we look at this, right, we, we look at verse 15, we see that Jesus is God. He's the very image, the exact representation of God. And that he's preeminent, that he stands over creation. He's, he holds a special position over and above the created world. So why is all of this important? The average pastor in a Protestant church stays a little more than seven years. And while I hope to be here longer than seven years, I'm hoping you keep me here a little bit longer. It's my dream to be here the rest of my life. Um, if I stay here seven years, that means I have about 350 sermons right, that I get to preach to you. So why would I take one week, one out of 350, and spend an entire week on one verse? Trust me, I have a lot of things to say. But why would I take one week and focus on this verse? Well, as I stated at the beginning, theology is important. It does matter what you believe. It absolutely matters. And when it comes to what you believe about Jesus, your Christology, it's incredibly important. And furthermore, as we work through this letter, we need to understand who Jesus is, the person and work of Jesus. We need to understand that to understand why Paul talks about him so much. You see, we live in a country that it seems to be increasingly hostile toward Jesus. Whether it's military chaplains being told they can't pray in his name, or Christians being told they can't wear a cross anymore, or live out their faith in their business. What, what was once honored, or at least tolerated, is now facing opposition in our country. But we should not be surprised, for Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you, right? It first hated me. But equally as damaging, and I think sometimes we get really excited about those things, but I would say equally damaging, if not worse, than a world that is hostile toward Jesus is a world that elevates the name Jesus but does not speak of the same Jesus. So equally as damaging is a world that speaks of Jesus, that talks about Jesus, but is talking about a completely different Jesus. Precisely what many cults have done and continue to do today. It's the craftiness of Satan that says, let's use their language. Let's talk about Jesus. We'll just talk about a different Jesus. We'll talk about the same things, the same, we'll use the same words, but we'll mean something entirely different. For example, we as Christians, we might turn on the, our favorite conservative talk show host, who, by the way, we might agree with politically. And I've done this, I've listened, right? And we, we turn him on and we go, wow, this guy, he's, he's spot on politically, but he's a Mormon. And he's talking about Jesus. And the problem is that he's not talking about the same Jesus. And too many Christians here, Mormons say, I know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And I've heard this individual say, I know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm a Christian. And we say, oh, oh okay. Well, you believe the same thing as I do then. I actually heard a pastor say, if we're up to me, I'd let him into heaven. I'd let this famous person, this famous Mormon into heaven. And why, I ask, why? Is, is it because you agree with him politically or morally? The, the real question is, do, does he know Jesus? Does he know the real Jesus? Not does he have a belief system that talks about someone or something named Jesus. Does he know the real Jesus? The Church of Latter-day Saints teaches that Jesus is a God. 
a God. And that humans can become gods as well. They don't hold the same orthodox biblical teaching that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Yahweh. And as Yahweh, He stands outside of, above the created world. Now, I'm not picking on Mormons. I'm not saying Mormons are not loving people or peaceful people or that politically they're bad. I'm not, I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying they're deceived. And in the same way, we could, we could pick on Jehovah's Witnesses. We could say that Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is God. And so, in fact, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that, that Jesus was the first thing created by God and that He then in turn created the world. They would take verse 15 and they would say this. They would say, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That He was made in God's likeness, that He's kind of like God. He's a representation of God. He is a God. And He was the first thing created by God. And then He turned around and created the rest of the world. That He's a mini-God, so to speak. It's not the same thing. Jesus clearly claimed to be God. The religious leaders of his day understood that. They understood, and that's why they wanted to kill him. John 10, verses 30 through 33. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones, and they were ready to kill him, it says. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you trying to stone me? And the Jews answered him and said, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. The Jewish leaders understood this Man claims to be God. And they wanted to kill Him. Far be it from us to take Jesus out of His proper place and make Him something less than who He is. Many cults refer to the name of Jesus, but they reject Him as God. And in so doing, they make Him an idol. They make a God to create, to suit, they create a God to suit themselves. And their eyes are blinded to the truth. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3-6 through six says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled from those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image, the icon of God. Their eyes are blind, so that they may not see that Jesus is God. See, those who deny the deity of Jesus do not see what is taught in this verse or the rest of Scripture. If you look real briefly at Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1, starting at verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, Heir of all things. The one who is the firstborn. The one who has the rightful place to inherit everything. Through whom, he also made the world, by the way. He's the creator God. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. There is a reason that scripture says again and again and again that Jesus is God. This is not a minor doctrine. There are things that we will debate. There are things that we will argue back and forth. There are things that we may not figure out this side of heaven that we're going to try to figure out in Scripture and we come back to and we, we see Scripture different ways. Scripture is clear. Jesus is God. It goes on in verse 10 and says, uh, uh, I'm sorry, verse 8 says, but of the Son, He says, your throne, O God, is forever. 
This verse, all of Hebrews 1, is all about Jesus being God. So how do we apply all of this to our lives here at Harmony Bible Church? How do we take this passage that talks about Jesus is God, He stands above creation, above the created world, that He's preeminent, that He's prominent over all things, and how do we apply it? Do we say, well, I'm no longer going to listen to conservative talk radio? Right? No. Do we say, well, I'm going to make sure that I, that I go around and, and make sure that every uh, cult, that I'm going to confront them and address this, and I'm going to preach this message? Well, maybe. Maybe that's what God has called you to do. But I think there's something for us to live in our personal lives here as well. That as we step back, we realize that the Scripture tells us that Jesus is God for a reason. Philippians 2, verses 6-13. through 13, I want to look to there first for an answer. For those of you who don't know Jesus, and maybe you don't know Jesus yet, I don't know where you stand with Christ, but I want you to understand what Philippians 2, 6-13, it says. It's Jesus, although He existed in the form of God, Paul says, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held onto, right? But instead, it says, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He, he, he reiterates the gospel, he tells him the gospel, that, this, that God became man and died on the cross for our sins. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above, which is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as only in my presence, but, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Paul says... God became a man. His name was Jesus. And he died on the cross for your sins. He says, therefore, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, continue to obey. He says, confess, obey, and persevere. If you do not know Jesus, today is the day to confess that Jesus, to, to know Jesus, the real Jesus, to know that God became man and He died on the cross and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then obey and persevere. Persevere. As, as Sam said, keep on believing. Don't just believe. Keep on believing. Most of us have been there. Most of us can say we've trusted Christ. We know Christ. We're seeking to obey Christ. But for those of us who have confessed Jesus, who are walking in obedience, who are growing in godliness, our response is not that much different. We too must confess Jesus. We must confess Jesus to ourselves, to each other, to a watching world. We should get up every morning and remember that Jesus is God, that God came in the flesh and died on the cross for us. We must say that to ourselves every day. We must say that to each other every day and proclaim it to a watching world. We must confess that He is God. And He is the God who stands above all created things. That we may get excited about motorcycles or convertibles, which are old man motorcycles, or 
Whatever we get excited about the things of this world that are but created things. We say, wow, these things excite me. And the Scripture says Jesus stands above everything created. That there's nothing created. Not money, not sex, not computers, not motorcycles. Jesus stands above all that because He is God. And we must confess that. I need to confess that daily to myself. Daily to my community group. Daily to everyone around me, to my family. I must do that. And then we must obey. We must know that such obedience begins with the knowledge of God and His will. If we're to walk with Jesus, we must know Jesus. And we have to help each other in this endeavor. We have to help each other. We have to live in such a way that we're vulnerable. That we're calling each other out. That we're helping each other live life together. That's what it is about, folks. Not to sit on the edge. Not to sit on the periphery. But instead, to say, I need you in my life. I need T to say, whoa, pastor, you're off on this one. I need that. And then we need to persevere. We must work out our salvation. We must be diligent to grow. We need to be a workman who needs not be ashamed. And the only way we'll do that is through the grace of Jesus Christ. We must, again, do it together. We must help each other grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus day by day. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. Father, I thank You for coming into this world, for dying on the cross, for our sin. I thank You for the reminder that Jesus is not some lesser God, but that it was You who came. You who died for us. That as we reflect on our sin, that our sin is so great that it was not just a man who died in our place, but that it was You, a perfect and holy God who died, that we may have peace with You. God, I praise You for the truth of the, of the fact that the gift is the same as the giver. That the gift You gave was the gift of Yourself. Help us to remember that. Help us to not look to this world or anything in it, but instead to look to You. For You stand above everything created in this world. The firstborn of all creation. Father, thank You. Thank You, thank You. May we live lives worthy of the calling we have received. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomason, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and for more information about Harmony Bible Church, visit www.harmonybible.org. God bless, and to God be the glory.